Here it is. Again. One, two, three, four! I believe that the music I heard is a killer. It's a killer of hope. It's a killer of spirit. Debbie Harry! That's right. You sing with that rock group. And Devo plays for Muffy's party. We bring you an act who at first may shock you. The Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. Let's go! Hey everybody, this is Tony. And I'm Rob. And I'm Joseph. And welcome to another pop quiz episode of Deep Dives and Deep Cuts, the history of punk, post-punk, and new wave 1976 to 1986. So, some of you eagle-eyed listeners probably noticed this is not the deep dive episode on X that you were promised. <sighs> that's just the way it goes sometimes, right, Rob? Well, you know, that's the reason I'm here. This isn't the deep dive on X. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> we had a pretty cool uh, guest lined up for the X episode, and then they just went dark on us. So that's the trials and tribulations of doing a podcast, I suppose. <laughs> we did discover that our good buddy Zach is a big X fan. So he will he will actually be joining us, which which will be fantastic. He's just been on the road recently, so we're not going to be able to record that uh, till later on in the week. So we're we are about due for a pop quiz episode, so we're doing it now. But the deep dive episode on X is definitely coming. Rob. Yeah. You're sick as a dog. Well, I took a long trip to Cincinnati, Ohio to a book conference. And while on the plane, I ended up, my sinuses got dried out and I ended up with a hellacious uh, sinus infection. Luckily, the, the sinus infection didn't really happen until I got home. But man, this... This whole traveling on the plane with that stale air being recycled is is not fun. Mm -hmm. But you're here, and you, you here. sound you sound great. You sound oh. all gravelly <laughs> and sultry, and yeah. Well, that's <laughs> all that's that. intentional. Yeah. <laughs> so, Tony, we've got uh, a pop quiz episode ahead of us. We're covering March and April of 1980. I'm I'm excited about this. The first one went pretty well, I think. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, being the guinea pig, uh, both of you trying that out and seeing how it went, and I think it went pretty well. Um, the questions were a lot of fun to put together. Same thing with this list for March and April. I really enjoyed putting some questions together, and hopefully uh, we learn a little bit more about the bands that you covered and uh, a little bit more about what was going on back in 1980. Uh, and just a reminder for the listeners you know, kind of the goal of, of the pop quiz is to cover the March and April time frame. Uh, we also do want to take a, a few moments to honor uh, some of our uh, punk pioneers that have passed in the last few months and just make sure we acknowledge and pay tribute to them uh, as part of it. But mm -hmm. in, hopefully in a fun way and, and just a reminder of the great music that those artists brought us. Before you take over, I... Just like last time, I have a uh, trivia question for the two of you. Oh, so okay. so let me let me get that out of the way, and then we can hand it over to our official pop quister. <laughs> I like that. That's a good one. <laughs> I I guess we could call him the Quizard of Awesome Music. Oh boy! Oh. 
or yeah. not. <laughs> That'll stick. Some people called me the tea doctor because of my music. So I don't know if we want to go trivia doctor. Right. I, I might accept that. I don't know. That's right. Okay. Uh, I do want to warn you. Uh, I mean, it's not a big stretch because I rarely win these things. But um, <laughs> my thinking, my my thinking cap is falling apart just because of yeah, the sinus yeah. infection. I'm not really thinking well, but I'm going to do my best. So now you have an official excuse. Yes, for, for yeah, losing exactly. To me. It, it might it. be the opposite, Rob. It, you, it might be actually the the thing that pulls you over and, and gives you the win. Oh, well, we'll see what happens. <laughs> Okay, gentlemen, you ready? Yeah. So just like last time, um, my question focuses on songs by artists that we cover on this podcast that broke the Billboard Top 100 in March and April of 1980, but didn't make it to the Top 40. So... In March and April, there were only two singles that broke the top 100 from um, artists that we cover. I am going to list five songs, and three of them are ringers. Okay. So three of these songs never made the top 100. The other two actually did, but didn't break the top 40. Okay. Okay, so you're looking for the two songs that actually made it. Option one, Rock Lobster by the B-52s. Option two, People Who Died by the Jim Carroll Band. Song number three, Can't Put a Price on Love by The Knack. Number four is Oh Yeah by Roxy Music. And the fifth option is the song Kid by The Pretenders. Song 
so once again, you are identifying the two songs that actually did break the Hot 100 here in the United States. And while you're thinking about that, um, I will read those over again. So it's Rock Lobster by the B-52s, People Who Died by the Jim Carroll Band, Can't Put a Price on Love by The Knack, and Oh Yeah by Roxy Music, and Kid by The Pretenders. Well, I'm going to go ahead and take a stab in the dark. Now, I, I want this to be true, but I kind, of, I kind of think maybe it's not. But I'm going to say Rock Lobster and, by the B-52s and can't put, a, can't put a Price on Love by The Knack. And that is coming from a vague memory. So mm-hmm. we'll see what happens, but th- those that's those are my answers. I, I'm fifty percent with Rob. I uh, can't put a price on love. I, I you know I think the knack was still riding high from my Sharona. They had the first single yep. from their second album. I get, I think go to like number fifteen. I want to think that the follow up song to that that was can't put a price on love um, did even worse. And I, I, I so I'm guessing that one possibly charted. Um, and then I don't think Rock Lobster charted, even though you would think it did. I'm going with people yeah, who died. Yeah. Well, Rob, having oh. a cold is do- doing you good, man. Yeah. You nailed it. You absolutely nailed it. So Rock Rock Lobster did um, uh, get on the charts, as well as the knack. People mm-hmm. who died, the album actually hit number 73 on the billboard album charts but this single mm. never broke the top 100 tony i think you were right man i think this whole like fog <laughs> in my head is helping me out <laughs> tony you ready to take it away we'll, we'll, we'll go ahead with the uh, first question which has to do with uh, the cramps that you guys covered i believe uh was at the march episode it was, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the first question has to do with a member of the Cramps who played on both the Gravest Hits album as long as well as songs the Lord taught us. Uh, he was known for smoking cigars, and he eventually, in 1980, stole the band's van and equipment so they couldn't play the next day. So the question for you is which one, <laughs> and these are all... Uh, former members of the Cramps is the one that actually stole equipment and the band's van in 1980. Was it Slim Chance, Chopper Franklin, Brian Gregory, or Kid Congo Powers? See, I I was going to go with the drummer because the drummer, drummers are crazy motherfuckers, but there (laughs) actually is no drummer here. So no, these are all uh, guitarists of some sort. Yeah. Uh, slim chance that's just a guess <laughs> I, I i'm saying it because i have a slim chance of being right I, i'm gonna say congo powers just because he he sounds like a crazy motherfucker he sounds like he could be a drummer um <laughs> <laughs> well answer is actually c brian gregory so the most typical uh name of the group uh he played rhythm guitar for the cramps back in 80 uh, he did leave the band, and I guess I should say allegedly stealing the band's equipment and van. Uh, and the story about him is that he went and eventually in the 80s ran an adult bookstore in Sarasota, Florida. Uh, and uh, 
never did music again from everything I read about. From that album, uh, wow. Songs the Lord Taught Us, the only song that Brian Gregory actually has a co-write on is the song I'm Cramped. Obviously, Brian Gregory left because he was <laughs> cramped. Okay, um, uh, that's that's. I gotta say, that's interesting. Um, I I like this like little kind of uh, out outlaw, you know, outlaw rocker vibe that he's got. Um, and then and then he what opened up an adult bookstore in Florida. <laughs> You know, now all those books are banned, right? And, and the quote that I read, and I, you know, I, I should clarify that these comments, uh, you know, I try to um, verify them where I can, uh, but it is internet information. I try to get them from different sources, but it, it was confirmed in a couple spots. And uh, it, the, the quote that somebody gave was he eventually made up with the rest of the cramps, apologizing for stealing all their shit and was living the high life of a Florida man. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we all know about Florida, man. Yeah. All right. all right. Thanks, Tony. I really like I'm Cramped. I don't have a problem with the name of the band being in the song. I mean, it can go either way. Um, so everybody <laughs> Wang Chung tonight, not really my favorite, but I'm fine with I'm Cramped. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Tied so far, zero Good to zero call. after question number one. But here's number two, a little bit easier, I think. So uh, another question about the Cramps. They went on their first tour opening for the police. And what the question is, what did the Cramps have in common with the police? A, they all went to high school together. B, they had the same manager. Or C, according to ChatGPT, Wasp Stings cause muscle cramps well i i am gonna have to answer uh, the last one apparently wasps being wasp stings do cause muscle cramps <laughs> well they were both they were on different continents so it seems a little unlikely that, mm -hmm. that the first two are true so I, i'm going with c as well I'm going to accept C because technically that's correct, but they actually had the same manager. No. Uh, 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 wow. Somebody known oh. as Miles Copeland. That's right. Yeah. Stewart's brother. We, we, I, we may have even mentioned this yeah. when we talked. Well, maybe we. I, I, yeah, I think this came up. Good grief. So that's how they got oh, their wow. chance with the police is when, uh, uh, when Miles, when Stewart's brother Miles signed them. He got them an opening slot for the police for their first album. Oh, that's, so th wow. that was that was 1980. That was 1970. What was uh, the first album for the police? 70. I think it was their 78 tour, if I remember right. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That sounds right. 
do we know where he was based? Was he based out of uh, out of uh, Great Britain, well, um, or was he here in the uh, states? Stuart, the Copeland kids were you know, their dad was was in what the CIA or FBI, so he traveled all over the place, and I think mm. he was stationed in the UK for a period of time. So I, I believe that's mm. why Miles ended up signing a number of uh, British artists. Speaking of Miles Copeland, he formed IRS Records in 1979 and signed the Cramps along with all of the following bands except one. So all of these bands were signed to IRS Records to some degree, except for one of these. So the four choices are Berlin, the Dead Kennedys, the Knack, or R.E.M. Well, it's uh, once again, it's a stab in the dark because I didn't even know about IRS records necessarily. Uh, I'm going to say REM, though. All right. Joseph. I was a big fan of REM. Uh, well, I was a big fan of REM, but I was a big fan of um, the IRS label ah. in the in the 80s. So I had a, a fair amount of compilations, like best of compilations. They, I think they released three or four of them. I don't remember the knack ever being on one of those, so I'm going to go with the knack. And Joseph has got it. It is the knack. Okay. So uh, other okay. bands, uh, Rob, that uh, you might be familiar with, I think that the Go Go's is kind of the one that right now is sticking in my head as being a, a huge, <laughs> a big huge fan sign. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but what's interesting is Berlin had originally signed their first album with IRS, but they only released the first single on the label. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm assuming that's because of the change in vocalist uh, to Virginia Macalino mm -hmm. um, from uh, Terry Nunn. Yeah. The song that was uh, that IRS had released was A Matter of Time by Berlin. the IRS label. Um, the last season, uh, 1979 season, we saw the release of the of Fashion's first album. Um, and in one of their early singles, um, uh, Sodium Pententhal Negative, was uh, released by IRS. Um, and that's like the really the only place that you can find that song it's really obscure but it's awesome irs was one of those labels that they would discover a brand new exciting band that would almost immediately get get snatched up by a, a major record label not too long after that so yeah. there there's a lot of awesome artists that start out with irs but uh you know move on pretty quickly so gotcha uh, irs 
was started, like I said, by Miles Copeland, Stewart's brother. Um, IRS was a, I don't know if it's a, a sub-label or imprint of A&M Records, which is what the police was signed to. And Miles convinced Jerry Moss, who ran A&M Records, for him to start his own label within A&M, and that's where IRS started. All right, so our next question, kind of following the, the line there where we were talking about Berlin. Many of us never heard that first album until we were introduced to it on the recent episode of Deep Dives. Uh, it was released on vinyl records and was recorded during the period when Terry Nunn had temporarily left the band to pursue an acting career. You can find the audition tape that Terry Nunn did for one of the movies that she auditioned for on YouTube. And in the audition tape, she's actually um, acting with a well-known actor. And the question for you is, which movie did she audition for? Was it Coal Miner's Daughter, Ooh. Saturday Night Fever, <laughs> or Star Wars? So I'm going with uh, Coal Miner's Daughter, just because it's the most left of field. And why not? Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to have to say... Saturday Night Fever, and this might be funny. I, I, being a huge Star Wars fan, I've never heard of this, and I'm also a huge Berlin fan, Terry Nunn specifically, and I've never heard of this. So, so I'm gonna eliminate Star Wars right away, <laughs> and I'm gonna say Saturday Night Fever. And the answer is Star Wars. So I, I went and looked up the tape, but you can is. see uh, Terry Nunn <laughs> and Harrison Ford uh, acting and auditioning for where Terry's auditioning for the part of Princess Leia in Star Wars, which would be a very oh, different movie. It's wow. hard to imagine somebody other than Carrie wow. Fisher. <laughs> Mind blown. <laughs> yeah. Great. So our, our next uh, uh, question, we're going to go ahead and honor one of the artists that has uh, passed the last few months. Uh, maybe our most um, colorful, interesting artist of the 80s. So I wanted <laughs> to talk a little bit about Mojo Nixon. Mm -hmm. oh, good grief. Yeah. So, and I didn't know this, but he was actually uh, born Neil Kirby McMillan Jr. Um, and I think I, I called it loosely psychobilly as the type of music that he played uh, because obviously there was a strong yeah. uh, comedic element to what he talked about. So, Mojo's first album came out in 1985. He paired with Skid Roper in the early 80s um, and Roper did most of the instrumental backup. Mojo Nixon did most of the singing. They released their first album in 1985 on Enigma Records. Uh, the song was called Jesus and McDonald's was the, uh, if you want to call it a hit single, but that was the song most people know about. And the name of the album was Mojo Nixon and Skid Roper. But really, the album that broke out uh, Mojo's name, really got him national uh, recognition, was the third album, Bodacious, in 1987. And uh, the one song that I have to admit I heard nonstop was Elvis is Everywhere. Elvis is everywhere, man. He's in everything. He's in everybody. Elvis is in your jeans. He's in your cheeseburgers. Elvis is in Nutty Buddies. Elvis is in your mom. He's in everybody. He's in the young, the old, the fat, the skinny, the white, the black, the brown, and the blue. People got Elvis in them, too. Elvis is in everybody out there. 
Everybody's got Elvis in them. Everybody except one person, that is. Yeah, one person. The evil opposite of Elvis. The anti-Elvis. Anti-Elvis got no Elvis in them, let me tell you. Michael J. Fox has no Elvis in him. Uh. Yeah, and Elvis is in Joan Rivers, but he's trying to get out, man. He's trying to get out. Listen up, Joni, baby. Elvis is everywhere. Elvis is everything. I think, Rob, you and I listen, you know, with Dr. Demento being a highlight of our 80s uh, listening. Um, he was, several of his songs were played in heavy rotation on that show. All, all over, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so we're pouring one out for Mojo Nixon. I was um, a Mojo Nixon fan as well in the 80s. You, Tony, you mentioned earlier that uh, his, at least his early stuff was released on Enigma Records. I was a big fan of Enigma Records in the late 80s. This first first song I ever heard from by uh, Mojo Nixon and Skid Roper was off of one of the Enigma compilations, a pretty obscure track called Amsterdam Dog Shit Blues. Well, it's dog shit here, dog shit there, god dang dog shit everywhere, got the Amsterdam Dog Shit Blues. Dogs, great big dogs, filling up the street with the doo doo logs. Got the Amsterdam dog shit blues. Man, oh man, you better check your shoes. Well, you don't want to smoke it, don't want to roll it. Why'd you get some doggy, some little doggy toilets? Got the Amsterdam dog shit blues. Man, oh man, it's a You know, Joseph, I had not heard that song before. Um, I, I enjoyed it definitely very much in the Mojo Nixon um, persona. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like for a teenage <laughs> boy, that is just, that's pure gold right there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> I've got uh, four different lines from different songs by Mojo Nixon. Three of these choices are also the name of the song the fourth one is just a line of the song it's not actually a title of the song so what i'm asking you to do is identify which of these is just a line of the song not the actual title of the song so the four choices are a dad's going steady with a pig in a barn b debbie gibson is pregnant with my two-headed love child or C, Don Henley must die, and then finally D, Stuffin Martha's Muffin. So which one is not a song title? Okay, so I know that Debbie Gibson is pregnant with my two-headed love child. Is the name of a song? Yes, yeah, <laughs> I, I I had that album. <laughs> yeah, um, Don Henley must die is also. Yep, and I. I want to say Stuffin' Martha's Muffin is also the name of a song. So I'm going to have to go with A. All right. Joseph, what do you think? Yeah, so I am exactly right there with Rob as far as the process of elimination. But 
I really want there be a, to be a song called Dad's Going Steady with a Pig in the Barn. <laughs> so I'm going to go with Stuffing Martha's Muffin. So close. Rob's got the right answer. Dad's Going Steady with mm, a Pig yeah. in a Barn is from the – it's lyrics from the song – Tie my pecker to my That's leg. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so Joseph, um, Stuffin' Martha's Muffin was about uh, video jockey Martha Quinn on MTV. And that's actually yeah. what got him yeah. um, to start appearing on MTV. Oh, he, did those great com- he did those great commercials, those great <laughs> ads. Yeah. And then, uh, and then he did... And then, of course, Elvis is everywhere. And then when he came out with Debbie Gibson is pregnant with my two-headed love child, um, I think they initially played it, but then they got pushed back, and they basically um, didn't want to play it. And they, I wouldn't say banned Mojo, but they would they stopped playing his commercials and his songs. Mm, because Debbie was Gibson little... got too big. She got so big that they had to, yeah. Do you know who played Debbie Gibson in the, in the video? I don't. I've seen the video. I don't. I don't know who it was. Winona Ryder. Ah. <laughs> also, I I love Mojo Nixon. I'm gonna have to argue with him on one case. It is. I believe it is not true that Michael J. Fox has no Elvis in him. Has no Elvis, and Joan Rivers <laughs> has him, but he he's trying to get out. He's trying to get out. <laughs> I, I did want to um, make a mention that his one song, Don Henley Must Die, um, was obviously pretty controversial. But uh, he played it in Austin, Texas with Henley in the audience. Don Henley got up <laughs> and actually sang the song with him. That's fantastic. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're Don Henley, you don't give a fuck about one. <laughs> yeah. s- some but, little pissant like Mojo Nixon on the Enigma label says. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Debbie Gibson didn't care either. Well, maybe. <laughs> I think one of the, the issues that they had with Debbie Gibson's that Debbie Gibson song was that she was 17 at the time that uh, the song came out. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> so Debbie Gibson, that is one of my favorite songs by him. That one's the you know that one and Elvis is everywhere on Doctor Demento. I just you just could not get away from those two songs. Debbie Gibson is He did in the 90s, he left Enigma Records, which went, I think, bankrupt, and uh, he became a disc jockey, advice columnist. He was actually, I didn't know this, an honorary U.S. luge team captain of the 1998 (laughs) Winter Olympics. Mojo Nixon, a bit of a renaissance man. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely a part of my childhood. So, so um, sad to see uh, that he's passed, but definitely has given us a lot of great, fun music to listen to. All right, we're going to go to our next question. And this one has to do with another band, uh, Slaughter and the Dogs, that you talked about back in the uh, the March episodes. Or more correctly slaughter 
Because <laughs> they went from Slaughter and the Dogs to just Slaughter, right? And then back to Slaughter and the Dogs. Yeah. Uh, so th- this question has to do with their name Slaughter and the Dogs, because this was initially how they came up with the uh, the name of their their band. Um, mm-hmm. I, I did want to say my favorite track on the album that you played, Bite Back, was the song Don't Want to Die. So Slaughter and the Dogs um, came up with their name based on some artists that they really admired. So my question for you is, of the three artists that we're going to name here, two of them were the influence on their Slaughter and the Dogs name of the band. So which two of these three uh, influenced the name of the band? Was it David Bowie, Iggy Pop? or Mick Ronson. So we're looking for two of these choices for this question. Well, one of them is definitely David Bowie. So Diamond Dogs. Um, But the other one, I mean, Mick Ronson is so connected to David Bowie that it seems like it, that's not a good answer. Um, so I'm going to go with my second one being Iggy Pop. Mm. So I'm going to say David Bowie and Iggy Pop. Well, and Rob? I, I'm kind of using the same logic with Joseph, but coming up with a different answer. Um, <clears throat> I, I feel like Bowie is a for sure. Um, but I also feel like Iggy Pop, uh, Iggy Pop would be a bit obvious. Um so I, I want to say David Bowie and, and Ronson. Joseph's logic, uh, I'd say 50% of it works because <laughs> Diamond Dogs does explain mm-hmm. the dogs part. I guess the part that they dropped in their name eventually. Uh, Mick Ronson had an album called Slaughter on 10th Avenue. Mm. So even though he was the guitarist for, for Bowie, he also did a solo. I, I don't know how many albums he did solo, but he did an album called oh. Slaughter on 10th Avenue. And then David Bowie had Diamond Dogs. Put those together, you get Slaughter and the Dogs. Fantastic. I had no idea that he released any solo stuff. Well, it looks like this sinus infection's working out for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rob, you're uh, you're you're pulling into the lead, which is uh, I was gonna say it's a rare event, but we've only done one other pop quiz, so that's. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to question number seven, which has to do with four out of five doctors. Uh. Mm. Uh. (laughs) So they were known for uh, their music being played in two classic slasher films, uh, The Boogeyman and -hmm. House on Sorority Row. Uh, In fact, House on Sorority Row was named one of the greatest slasher films by Complex Magazine in 2017. And the band Four Out of Five Doctors actually played in the movie. And one of the songs mm-hmm. that they played uh, in an extended scene, for some reason, the, the movie would play their s- songs. Um, I think they joked that they were 
in like half the movie because they played most of each of their songs. Uh, but I wanted to uh, to feature Mr. Cool Shoes as one of the songs from that movie. Well, that movie was actually how I discovered Four Out of Five Doctors. So I watched <laughs> it and went, wait a minute, here's a here's a kind of new wavy-ish band that I'm not familiar with at all. Who is this? And went and, and checked it out and um, rue the day that I did. Did yeah. you see it, yeah. when it in the movie theaters or on TV? No, 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 no. Just five oh, okay. years ago or something. I yeah. was like, wow, I was about to be impressed. In 1980, the only movies I ever saw was with my parents <laughs> in the theater. So there's That's no what way I was that wondering. we're going to see a horror movie. <laughs> you know, it's it's pretty interesting. There are a bunch of really bad horror films that yeah that had really great bands or or, or you know the time. I want to say like I don't remember if it was the the Howling or Howling Three or Howling Seven. I don't know, that had a, a really cool new wave band, and I can't remember who it was, but I kept that, that vid- old videotape with that movie on it just because I liked that song so much, and I couldn't find it anywhere. <laughs> so All right, so uh, here's the question. So the house on Sorority Row, not surprisingly, featured people getting killed in various ways, as slasher films are prone to do. The following list are the various ways people died in the movie. Four out of five are actual ways people were killed. The fifth is not actually how someone was killed in the movie, House on Sorority Row. So which one of the following choices was not a way in which someone died in this movie? Oh, gosh. So I I don't remember a single thing about that movie other than the music. So... <laughs> So the five choices that we have, and again, four out of five are correct, hence the uh, the band that we're talking about. Uh, decapitated, someone was hacked to death, someone was pushed into the pool, someone was shot to death, or someone was stabbed to death. So one of four out of the five of those was actually how people were killed in the movie. One of those was actually not a way in which they were killed. So this is totally my kind of question, I have to admit, <laughs> but... Um, I vaguely remember this movie, so I'm going to go out on a limb here. It just seems to me that, <laughs> I don't know, maybe it was four out of five doctors. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but, but it seems to me that getting shot to death is a pretty mundane way to die in such a movie. So I'm going to say being shot to death was the way that didn't actually happen. That is exactly my logic as well. I, I have a vague recollection of somebody dying in a pool. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with shot to death as well. The actual answer is uh. pushed 
pushed into the pool. Nobody was actually killed in the pool, but they did hide bodies in the pool. Ah. Okay. Ah, That's the okay. Yeah, so people were shot pool. and then okay. put into the pool. So so Joseph, I could give <laughs> if I could give half credit, um, I would. <laughs> All right, our next question is about the stiff little fingers and how they got their name. They actually named themselves after another punk band and a song that was featured on their album. Which of the following is the punk band they named themselves after? Was it the Saints, Television, or the Vibrators? Mm, this one, I know this one. Rob, we, we actually covered this. We, we I remember that we talked about I just can't remember which <laughs> one it was. My gut tells me that it's the Vibrators because my sense is that Television was not was a pretty obscure band um for somebody living in let's see stiff little fingers they're irish right it seems a little unlikely that when they were getting around to naming their band that television was a band that someone in ireland would be that familiar with so um i i think it's the vibrators I'm going to say definitely the vibrators because we uh, did we did talk about this when we you know yeah. in the past and it, it literally it came from the 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 track from the vibrators album so okay uh, your confidence Rob is is paying off that's the uh, correct answer so the Pure Mania was yeah. the debut album by the punk band the Vibrators uh, released in 1977 yeah. and uh, Stiff Little Fingers was a track on that album so. Seemed unlikely to me that the Saints would have a song called <laughs> Stiff Little Fingers. That <laughs> right. The, Saints were a little bit more like straightforward, no nonsense. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not to sound obvious, but stiff little fingers and vibrators, they kind of go together, you know? Oh, and, and with that, we'll go to our next question. <laughs> All right, we got one about the Mekons. Uh, you talked about their mm -hmm. second album, the Mekons, or AKA Devil Rats and Piggies, a special message from Godzilla, probably my favorite album title. Oh, yes. Uh, that you covered. Uh huh. <laughs> So I had a question for you about the first album by the Mekons, The Quality of Mercy is Not Strinin. What's interesting about this album's back cover, there's an um, error on the back cover of that first album. Which one of the following three items is actually what's wrong with the back cover? Most of the band members pictured on the back cover had left the band before the recording. B, the picture of the band on the back cover was the wrong band. Or C, the monkey on the cover of the first album would later be used on their second album to look like Godzilla. Well, I don't remember talking about them leaving before it was... I'm sorry, before it was recorded. I don't recall talking about that, and it seems to me that would have come up when we covered the album. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and say that the monkey was a feature to look like Godzilla. I don't know how <laughs> that would have worked, so it's really just a a dart at, at 
you know, just throwing hmm. it out there. <laughs> My logic goes exactly opposite from yours. I, I think it was pretty typical for band members to come and go, um, but it seems highly unlikely that they would actually include the wrong band. But I, I'm going to go with A. I, I think that some of the members pictured had actually left the band by the by the time that they recorded. Joseph, the I got you again. Yeah, the back cover was not oh, yeah? the band. Oh. Wow. <laughs> um, you know, there were a gang of four fans. They used the instruments by the band Gang of Four, and due to the, an error by Virgin Records art department, the a picture of the band Gang of Four was actually on the back cover <laughs> wow. of the Mekon's first album. That's so awesome. it wasn't even intentional. They didn't intentionally put the wrong band. No. It was <laughs> wow. That's fabulous. How does that work? That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to think somebody got fired I, I, for that, but who knows? Maybe maybe it was 1980 and there was a lot of cocaine around. I don't know. There was a lot of stuff going around. <laughs> it didn't have to go through some sort of approval from the band or the manager or like anything. That's crazy. A lot of cocaine. That somebody would have at least <laughs> yeah. looked at it and say, here's a uh, press copy. Everything look okay? Seriously. Um, wow. I, I looked it up on, on Discogs, and I'm like, yep, there they are. Uh, <laughs> and, and now we did want to honor another um, pioneer that has passed the last few months. And just this one's a towering figure mm -hmm. in the influence on punk music, uh, Wayne Kramer oh, yeah. of the MC5. Right. So he did pass away uh, in February at the age of 75, um, from pancreatic cancer, just a huge, huge force. Uh, one of those stories that you hear about where his first, uh, the albums that he did with the MC5 didn't quite make the impact initially, and then years down the road, everybody starts listing that uh, those albums and Kramer as an influence for the music they made, including a number of punk artists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the three albums that they uh, released were Kick Out the Jams, which of course is, uh, I feel like that's the track everybody knows, yep. Back in the USA, and High Time. So some of the, the key tracks that I always think about besides Kick Out the Jams, Shaken Street, and then uh, one that I was hoping we could play, Sister Ann. Besides having a colorful police record, uh, an important record to note is that Rolling Stone ranked him among the 100 greatest guitarists of all time. I think that's a pretty important, uh, a pretty important way or a pretty important reason to salute him as he passes this mortal mm -hmm. coil. Mm -hmm. I actually heard an interview where he was talking about uh, the song High School, so he said, 
high school was a direct influence on the Ramones Rock and Roll High School, and the interviewer asked, you think you know? And he said, oh, I know. The Ramones <laughs> told me several times that they wrote Rock and Roll High School um, because they loved the song High School so much and wanted to do their take on that type of a song. So I and I had never heard High School before, at least I don't remember um, hearing it. And it is it's quite good. It's it's a fun song and uh, deservedly so in inspiration for one of the Ramones' most famous songs. I had not heard that song either uh, until uh, you brought that up on the on the playlist, Joseph. And and to know that that song inspired the Ramones, it makes a lot of sense now. But I had no clue. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, but I do know that the Ramones, you know, cited Kramer as as a huge influence on them. So it sounds very fitting and makes a lot of sense. So we're gonna let that lead into our next question uh, regarding uh, Wayne Kramer, and talked a little bit earlier about he did some jail time in the 70s for drug possession. Uh, He basically sold drugs to an undercover federal agent. And there was a band, a punk band, that had a song called Jail Guitar Doors on their album, uh, basically as a um, song about Wayne Kramer and his problems uh, that he had in the 70s with with drugs and going to prison. So the question for, for both of you is, which artist had the song Jail Guitar Doors uh-huh. featured on their album? I know this. So we either have Billy Bragg, The Clash, or The Sex Pistols. I don't remember a song with that title off on any of The Clash or Sex Pistols. Of course, it could could have been off Sandinista. I mean, who <laughs> who knows what the fuck songs are off that album? <laughs> so I, I'm going to go with Billy Bragg because that is the artist whose repertoire I'm the least familiar with. I'm going to have to say it's The Clash. Now, when I was oh. playing music for MWR, I played a lot of Clash and I played this song endlessly. And it seems to me it was one of their early off one of their earlier albums from like seven nineteen seventy nine or so. Rob, this cold is just treating you well because you are exactly right. <laughs> well, yeah, it's funny. My fo- my mind is foggy and I can't think of things to say. But as far as my memory with some of this stuff, it's it's kicking in. So, so it, it must be the um the, their second album. Give give him enough rope. It, it says uh, it's from the Clash U.S. edition, nineteen seventy nine. Oh, so their first interesting al- uh, first album. So when it was re-released in the U.S., I, I yeah US I didn't uh, of their first dig into album. it. Not Sandinista. Yeah, their their first album. But I will oh, give you okay. Joseph. It was slightly a trick question because, um, Jail Guitar Doors actually became a nonprofit organization that provided musical instruments 
for individuals that are incarcerated in prison. Mm-hmm. So Billy Bragg started the charity in the UK. It wasn't a trick question because I had no <laughs> knowledge of any of that. So, <laughs> And Wayne Kramer started in the U.S. version of it after he got out a few years later. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. So I, I did want to listen to a little bit of The Clash's jail guitar doors just to give uh, everybody a, a little taste of what that sounded like. crushing it and this is this is not just your cold (laughs) taking control i mean you you actually know some of this stuff you're right i do actually know some of it also i'm on a a lot of drugs (laughs) Uh, (laughs) so but but yeah no a lot of this stuff is is you know i would do for music world radio i would do these um just punk rock shows and they were four hour shows. So I had to prepare a lot of music. Mm. Um, and there was some research and a little bit of talking on my part, but, but, um, yeah, some of this stuff is just stuff that's coming back to me for some weird reason. (laughs) So, and I, I was just going to, you know, some of the key lyrics in that song, um, that tell you very clearly it's about Wayne is let me tell you about Wayne and his deals of cocaine a little more every day. holding for a friend till the band do well, then the DEA locked him away. Yeah. Well, it was fortuitous that his name rhymed with the word cocaine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and look at something great came out of it too. You know, oh, no kidding. I think that's cool. That's cool. One of the tracks I asked uh, to play uh, that Wayne was on was the first single by Was Not Was, which is one of my favorite 80s bands. I'm not sure if they fall completely in a punk or if they're just kind of an alternative uh, world as to how you classify them. But they had a song called Wheel Me Out that was released as a mm. single in 1980 that featured Wayne Kramer on guitar. mentioned that you wanted to feature the song i kind of panicked because we do not cover was not was but i went and looked them up and they are they are classified in all of the instances i found as art funk so um but pretty fun stuff i always kind of liked was not was so Mm -hmm. maybe at some point we might include them in a deep uh some bonus episode just because 
The music's so fun. The reason you may not want to cover them is their first album, Born to Laugh at Tornadoes, that came out in 83, features ver- various songs with vocals by Doug Feger of the Knack. <laughs> You're right. You're right. <laughs> Heading for the hills on that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, once again, pouring one out for Wayne Kramer, one of the the founders, uh, the vocalists and guitarists and songwriter, one of the songwriters for um, proto-punk legends, um, MC5, the MC5. Yeah, cheers. Yeah. Cheers. Um, final comment with, uh, there's a quote that Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine, who cited Kramer as a major influence, uh, uh, released this month. He said, his band, the MC5, basically invented punk rock music. Wayne came through personal trials of fire with drugs and jail time and emerged a transformed soul who went on to save countless lives through his tireless acts of service. Wayne Kramer, lead guitarist for MC5, influencing many of the artists covered on this podcast. We thank you for your music. Mm-hmm. That's killer. Great. <laughs> there were um, two other artists I wanted to just quickly mention that did pass the last couple of months um, that, I, that I wanted to mention. Uh, the first is Manny Martinez, the drummer for the Misfits. Uh, he played with the band before they really recorded their first album. He was on their first song, Cough Cool, and... Uh, toured with them uh, that first year, but left shortly before they recorded that first album. He died in December 23 at age 69. And I also did want to mention Scott Kempner of The Dictators. He was rhythm mm-hmm. guitarist from 1973 to 1980, and then various reformations of the band uh, since then. Um, he was a founding member of The Dictators as well as The Dell Lords, the debut album by The Dictators, called The Dictators Go Girl Crazy, is now considered by many to be the precursor to the punk rock genre, and Kempner was an early punk pioneer. We have, of course, have talked about The Dictators in the past. We've discussed a couple of their albums. I think for us, for our podcast, uh, kind of the most notable thing is that uh, we... We hear the dictators in almost every episode that we do. So in the beginning, at the oh, yeah. ver- right before we introduce ourselves, the let go comes from one of uh, the dictators' uh, classic songs. Um, yeah. So we, we, we owe a lot mm. to the dictators. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. We've got uh, question number 11. This one's uh, about John Cooper Clark and his album Snap, Crackle, and Bop. One song I wanted to talk about was uh, evidently Chicken Town from that album. The bloody view is bloody vile, bloody miles and bloody miles, bloody babies, bloody cry, bloody flowers, bloody die, bloody food is bloody mop, bloody drains are bloody fuck, color scheme is bloody brown, evidently Chicken Town. The bloody pubs are bloody dull, the bloody clubs are bloody full, the bloody girls are bloody guys, the bloody murder in their eyes, the bloody blog got bloody stamp, waiting for the bloody cap, bloody stay up, bloody home, bloody neighbor, bloody moan, keep the bloody racket down, this is bloody chicken town. That song was featured prominently in a very popular TV show in the 90s. Uh, which TV show 
was that song featured in? Was it Seinfeld, The Simpsons, or The Sopranos? Uh, well, I'm just going to take a wild guess. First of all, I uh, popular popular opinions here, but uh, I couldn't stand Seinfeld. <laughs> I didn't watch I didn't watch The Simpsons, and and I've only seen one episode of The Sopranos. But I'm going to go ahead and say The Sopranos. <laughs> mm. Well, that is my guess too. Although I I came to that answer with a little bit more logic than you did. Okay. <laughs> so I I have. Uh, Seinfeld, I've seen most of the episodes. Way too yuppie <laughs> to to yeah. to feature John <laughs> Cooper Clark. Um, the the Simpsons they're really about American pop culture, so it seems a little unlikely that they would they would pop in something obscure. But the Sopranos, pretty surprising in a lot of the the songs that they chose to feature in their episodes. So that's the one that kind of feels correct to me. So, Well, both of you got this one right. It is The Sopranos at the end of an episode called Stage 5 that features this song. is eerie. It's foreboding. You know something bad is about to happen when you're hearing the song playing. Uh, it's cutting between <laughs> a bar scene where these guys are talking about killing people, and then you've got a baptism going on in in kind of a split scene while this song is playing, and you know something's about to go down. So good job, both of you. Yeah. Question number 12, and it's about uh, another group called The Passions, and a song that was featured, I think, Joseph, this might have been your choice, was Metal, Pedal Fury from their album mm -hmm. Michael and Miranda. So with that, I've got a question for both of you about Clive Temperley and what he did after The Passions. Uh -huh. oh, but in line with that song, Pedal Fury, Clive's held a number of automobile-related jobs uh, since the early 80s, according to his LinkedIn profile. So which one of these three was he? did he never do? So he's done two of these three jobs, but one of these he's actually never done. So the three choices are chauffeur driver, B, driving instructor, or C, race car driver. So which one of those has Clive never done, according to his LinkedIn profile? It seems to me like driving instructor and race car driver are kind of the two most similar. Like if one did one, they might do the other. So I'm going to, uh, by process of elimination, choose chauffeur driver. This is a punk rock guy, so the <laughs> most exciting two were probably the ones that he did driving instructors go through a lot of hell man <laughs> and and race car driving is so intense so i'd have to say something as uh as boring as a chauffeur driver <laughs> is something he didn't do. he was a driving instructor for over 20 years and for three years he was a huh? chauffeur driver and a driver for hire as he called it. Uh, I couldn't okay. find any record of him being a race car driver, but he seemed to have worked with several agencies in, in driving instructing. That seemed to be his thing. All right, our next question is about the American band X. 
Two of the members, married couple John Doe and Exine Zervenka, wrote all the songs on the debut album except one. The man that actually went on to produce that first album was in the audience at the Whiskey A Go-Go and wanted to produce their first album after hearing them play that one song that they didn't write. So what was special about that one song that the band didn't write? A, he was one of the song's co-writers, the person in the audience, or B, the person in the audience, the song was written by his ex-wife, or C, the song got his mojo rising. We did talk about how Ray Manzarek uh, produced that album. So I'm going to go <laughs> with Got His Mojo Rising. Ray Manzarek of the Doors, of course. Well, I my guess is that it was a song that he wrote or co-wrote. That's makes the most logical sense. I have no idea who he's married to. So <laughs> the one song on the album that was not written by the band was Soul Kitchen, which was written by the members of the Doors. Yeah, mm-hmm. it it was it, if I remember correctly was actually a cover. Yeah, it's a cover of a, the Doors song, but they played it. They played it at before it went on the album and Ray Manzarek was in the audience. Mm. Heard it and then shortly after wanted to produce their first album because he th- their version of that song was so different from theirs. Nice. So I was thinking it'd be interesting to hear uh, a little bit of the X version of Soul Kitchen and maybe uh, with the Doors version back to back just to kind of hear how different the two songs are. fan of the doors and uh you know i'm i I gotta say i'm liking x a little bit more as we're doing you know some some research and whatnot for uh for our deep dive um i i find this song actually pretty interesting i I find it interesting on by both bands so i i kind of dig this yeah it's an interesting cover yeah All right, let's uh, go to our next question here. Another one that's a little obscure, but when I was researching all the bands, this is the only band that I could find 
that had over 50 former or current band members listed on Wikipedia. <laughs> I couldn't find anyone close that had this many members uh, pre or post. I was thinking the Cramps might have been close, but they were not. So the question for you is, mm. which one of these three bands that you covered actually had uh, have listed over 50 current or former band members? Is it the Angelic Upstarts? Is it the UK Subs? Or is it the Crocodiles? So UK Subs, they I think it's close to 80 Oh, members really? over, over the years. Yes, this Good. is this is one I actually knew. <laughs> and well, are and are they, they are. still active? They they are still yeah okay. Well, no kidding. Well, I picked the UK subs just because. I mean, there's a shot in the dark for me. I had no idea how many band members uh, are in either of those. So, um, but yeah. Well, that was well my Joseph guess. got it exactly right. Yeah, it's it's well above fifty. Um, nobody came even close to that number. All right, we've got uh, one more question right. to go through here. This one's about Tina Matthews, who was in the Crocodiles. So she was also in a band called the Wide Mouthed Frogs before the Crocodiles. And uh, obviously the album Tears were featured in your April episode. Although not with high praise. Not from me, at least. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Rob, you, you kind of dug the album, though. I did. Yeah, I, I liked it all right. So while Tina was in the Crocodiles, she she had a side career going. So I was, she must have been betting that the music thing may not work out. Um, so between her main career in the 80s was actually working on something else. And probably the highlight of her other career was working on David Bowie's movie Labyrinth, working as an assistant. So who was she an assistant to in the movie Labyrinth? Was it A, David Bowie, B, George Lucas, or C, Jim Henson? And all three of those were involved in the movie, just to be clear. But which one of those was she actually listed as an assistant to in her occupation? Again, another shot in the dark. This is not something I've got no knowledge over, except I do love the movie. Um, I'm going to have to say Jim Henson because somebody needed to keep those rowdy puppets in line. Well, my answer is David Bowie. And I'm thinking that he's, he's the only one of the three who doesn't normally work in movies as far as like his main gig. So... George Lucas and Jim Henson, I imagine that they probably already have like regular assistants that just work with them from movie yeah. to movie. So I'm saying David Bowie. That's really good logic. Rob and his thinking on Jim Henson, keeping those puppets in line is, is correct. Um, Tina's main career in the 80s was being an assistant puppet master. Um, and she worked on the movie Labyrinth with Jim Henson on managing and keeping those pu puppets in line as, as Rob would say, um, you know, crocodiles were from New Zealand. She eventually moved over to Australia where she was doing even more, uh, of her, uh, what's called ma master puppet maker, uh, activity, I guess. And, uh, she honed her skills with Jim Henson working on the movie. And then later in the eighties, she actually developed an Australian show featuring um, uh, certain puppets called the Ferals, which look a lot like oh, Fraggles, if you will. 
uh, the U.S. Fraggles, and that show won a ton of awards featuring for kids. She's actually still on YouTube um, talking about that. That's really her high point and her proud moment. And she currently works with children on developing and doing puppet shows. And you can see some of her videos on YouTube uh, of what she's done. So good for her for finding a very successful career post crocodiles. Who would have thought that there was life after the crocodiles? So (laughs) Tina, Tina Matthews, a uh, post-punk singer and puppet wrangler. Yes. <laughs> got it. So I got I got skunked, Rob. You you very very uh, roundly whooped me on this one. What's what's the final score there, Tony? So I've got a count of uh, eight yeah. to six. Where Rob? That's not too bad. Took not the too bad. lead. So we we have a. We have a tie so far in our uh, pop quizzes mm. to date. Mm-hmm. Victory well, for each. I'll be in full health next time, and you'll soar past me with no problem. <laughs> 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 Unless I decide to take the drugs, even though I'm healthy. <laughs> cool, cool. <clears throat> Thanks. This was fun, Tony. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, good one. So, Tony, just, I mean, you, we haven't spoken with you in a couple of months. Um and since the last time we talked to you, we have, uh, on the podcast, we have tackled the March and April of 1980, uh, releases. Do you have a f- favorite? Where, where, where are you at? Is there, is there something from March or April that just absolutely leaped out at you? Um, probably sounds obvious, but I love the Cure album. I, I forgot. Mm, yeah. I, I didn't remember liking it as much, but re-listening to mm-hmm. it, the Radiators was an excellent find. I that one came out of left field for me. Um, I actually enjoyed the Passions mm-hmm. album also, mm-hmm. to be honest mm-hmm. with you. And then uh, I was looking to see what my uh, my April list was, but there uh, April was was I'd say overall was stellar. Just a number yeah. of albums that yeah, I really really, really enjoyed. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, several that were just, who knew? I had no clue. Uh, and, and even the crocodiles, I think, uh, you guys summed that one up pretty well. It was one that I, I didn't mind listening to it, but afterwards I could not remember it to save my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Next month is a big month for, for us. Uh, as I'm sure every remember, we're taking, uh, the month off from our regular schedule, but we still got a bunch of stuff coming out. The next, hopefully, knock on wood, the next episode will be our uh, much-anticipated deep dive on X. Looking forward to it, yeah. Then we have a surprise or two, and we are going to end the month, next month, with our 100th episode, which is all going to be all about discoveries so what are is everybody's favorite discoveries over the course of this podcast so there is some time to get your submission in we've gotten a fair amount of submissions but not as quite as many as we hoped so um you know, barring an unexpected glut at the very end uh, at this point if you submit um your your favorite discovery will almost certainly be featured in our 100th episode. 
You can submit that in a couple of ways. Uh, kind of the ideal way is either send us an email at deepdives.deepcuts at gmail.com or if you look in the show notes, there is a link to a voice memo app where you can leave a 90-second voice memo, uh, which we will uh, play during the episode. Um, how are how are the two two of you going? Have you kind of coming up with your final list of your favorite discoveries? Yeah, you know, um, as far as my favorite discoveries, the list is awful I was gonna big. Say the same. Yeah, but yeah. but um, I am trying to whittle it down a little bit. And I mean, there was just so many, so many amazing things that I discovered. So many really, so many cool bands that. Um, you, you never hear about that, that I really liked and that I really took to. Um, so it'll be fun talking about them and, and getting to hear other people's uh, discoveries yeah. as well. Yeah. It's a little bit more time to submit. So if you hear this before the 3rd of March uh, and something leaps to mind, please let us know and we will... Um, do our best to include it in that episode. We, on that note, um, we heard, just heard from Martin F. And he didn't officially mention a favorite discovery, but he was, he did ha in the course of his email, he did happen to mention um, his delight on discovering the passions first album. Uh, so, um, which is, I think, is a, a discovery for all three of us. Yeah. So we will go out on one of those songs. Uh, before that, we've talked about a lot of music tonight. And regardless of what our personal taste may be, the very fact that we are discussing it 40 plus years later places its creators in the highest echelons of hardworking musicians their legacy and legitimacy are beyond reproach. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Any last thoughts before we we go out on a passion song? No, get the uh, other than get those submissions in. We want to hear your discoveries. Yeah, no. Thanks again for for having me on the show and letting me uh, uh, quiz both of you with some some random trivia. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, Tony. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Another another one <laughs> in the can, Tony. Great job. Okay, everybody, we will talk to you hopefully next week um, at the very latest two weeks from now where we dive into the catalog of the L.A. band X. Uh, Rob, you and I are are up to our eyeballs in X music nowadays. It's, yes. <laughs> last night I actually heard one of their songs in my sleep it was in ah! one of my dreams <laughs> fantastic so you know when you're when you're a little oversaturated when that starts to happen yep. so bringing it home it's going to be a lot of fun um we are as i mentioned at the top we've got a returning guest a buddy of both of ours that we are we are looking forward to having a very lively and robust it's it's going to be a love fest for <laughs> for x i don't yeah, there's absolutely. there's no haters here when it comes to x for sure all right thank you gentlemen 
we'll talk to you very, very soon. Great. See ya. See ya. How can I get to you?